Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. COVID-19 has shaken the world for over a year now, affecting millions in a devastating way and affecting the entire human family in ways we could not have fathomed before all this started. For many of us, this is the biggest crisis we have faced in our lifetimes. And in a world that feels completely uncertain, we feel out of balance, vulnerable, and suffer from anxiety and fear. I want to invite you all to get back into balance and remind you that you can take control of your health and boost your immune system and well-being. And my guest today will talk about exactly that, how we can boost our immune system to combat COVID-19. Dr. Roger Schwelt is a multidisciplinary medical doctor, as well as the co-founder of MedCram, a medical education platform with the mission to demystify medical concepts for people worldwide. Dr. Schwelt is currently an associate clinical professor at the University of California, Riverside School of Medicine, and an assistant clinical professor at the School of Medicine and Allied Health at Loma Linda University. He is a quadruple board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary diseases, critical care medicine, and sleep medicine through the American Board of Internal Medicine. His current practice is in Banning, California, where he is a critical care physician, pulmonologist, and sleep physician at Beaver Medical Group. He was formerly the director for intensive care services at San Gorgonio Memorial Hospital, and he lectures routinely across the country at conferences and for medical PA and RT societies. In his pulmonary and critical care work, Dr. Schwell takes care of patients in the hospital, many of whom suffer from COVID-19. As a clinician and physician, Dr. Schwell is constantly learning about all aspects of the virus in order to give the best care and treatment possible to his patients. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Dr. Schwell, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here, Ariane. Well, it's a privilege to talk to you, uh, what you've been dedicating your life to, and especially in this uh, last year, is affecting so many people positively. And I would like to start talking with you about the different phases of COVID-19. Can you explain them to us in a nutshell and then also go into detail about why they require different treatment protocols? Yes, very good. So obviously, there's the phase before you become even infected, and that's the prevention phase. But when we actually look at when the virus gets into somebody, there's two phases, as you mentioned, to this. And it's very important to think about that in terms of later when we talk about therapeutics. There is the point where the virus is outside the cells, and, and the virus wants to infect those cells When it gets to a point where so many cells become infected, there's another phase that occurs where the virus is predominantly already inside the cells themselves. And that 
turns into the second phase where we typically see a cytokine storm. So let's back up and talk briefly about the first aspect of this, the phase one, as I call it. So when the virus comes in and is, is infecting, what you need at this point to prevent infection are antibodies to neutralize the virus, but also a portion of your immune system known as the innate immune system. This is a, a portion of your immune system that is not educated from a vaccine standpoint. It really is based on your ability for cells that normally eat foreign substances to eat them up and present them to the other half of the immune system. This is the part of the immune system that's involved with fever. This is part of the immune system that's involved with something called an interferon response or IFN. And we know very well from studies that have looked not only at SARS-CoV-2, but its predecessor, the first SARS virus back in 2002, that the virus is very good at suppressing this very important immune response, specifically the interferon response. They've looked at this in several different ways. And the way that the virus gets a foothold is here at the phase one. The immune response is not good. It doesn't prevent the infection from occurring and the virus gets into many, many cells. And so this is analogous, or this is actually the time period where the patient is sitting at home. He knows he's infected. He's got a fever. He has muscle aches. And this goes on and on and on for seven days. And the reason why it goes on for such a long time is because that innate immune system is crippled, it's anemic, and it's not doing the job. Now, at the end of those seven days, what we typically see is the second phase then kicks in. This is where the adaptive immune system, this is the part of the immune system that has antibodies, it, it's, it's T cells. These are the cells that now are fighting the virus inside the cells. They've already made it in there, they're now inside. And so what these T cells do is they go around the body cleaning up these cells that have become infected. And because unfortunately so many cells have become infected with the virus, you have your immune system attacking a very large proportion of the cells in your body. And this unfortunately is what gets people into the hospital with cytokine storm, with pneumonia, and, and it goes downhill from there. So those are your two phases. Phase one, virus is outside the cells predominantly. The way to prevent it is with um, an interferon response. Phase two, the virus is already inside the cells and the immune system is attacking it using different tools like T cells. Excellent, thank you so much for explaining this in a way that everybody can easily understand. It's a very uh, a complex situation, of course. And what you just said about the innate immune system and that for a lot of people while they sit at home and they feel sick over days, um, you said that the innate immune system is crippled. It just doesn't kick in. So I'd like to delve a little bit deeper into that because it appears that if we would be able to boost our immune system, fortify it, that we may not even get into this phase two if in phase one we can fight the virus off. And one thing that I found particularly fascinating over the last 12 months with different studies popping up all across the world independently from each other is that there um, appears to be an association between uh, COVID-19 and the groups that are most affected by it and vitamin D deficiency. I know you have had an extensive interest in uh, vitamin D and you studied it. Could you go into this aspect for us, please? 
Yeah, absolutely. So there, the, you're absolutely right. The innate immune system is crippled. And this, this goes back just to a number of studies that have been done. They've looked at people who have deficiencies in their genes to make an interferon response. They've had patients who've had antibodies made against interferon. And in the, those situations, they almost always have a very severe COVID course. The reason why we believe this is the case is because there are proteins in the virus that specifically inhibit the body's ability to secrete uh, interferon and to, to have an interferon response. And this has to do with immunomodulation. This has to do, that's a very long word for basically telling the immune system what it needs to do. It needs to be strong when it needs to be strong and it needs to pull back and not be so strong when that's the case. So here clearly in phase one, we want a very strong and boosted immune response. But in phase two, where there's a lot of cells that have been infected, the, the, the problem is with too strong of an immune response. And that gets us back to exactly what you asked about, which is vitamin D. If you look at the structure of vitamin D, vitamin D looks very similar to other hormones in our body that are secreted uh, from the adrenal gland, for instance, um, like aldosterone. Um, like cortisol, like testosterone, in fact, and estrogen and progesterone. All of these are what we call steroid hormones. Now, why is that important? These steroid hormones are able to go directly into the nucleus of cells where proteins are expressed or, or messenger RNA is, is transcribed. And, and these cause the proteins, the very expression of these cells, uh, proteins can be changed with these steroid hormones over a number of days. So if you look at the structure of vitamin D, you can tell just by looking at it, just Google it, Google the, the chemical structure of vitamin D, and now go Google the chemical structure of cortisol and all of these other uh, hormones. They all work in a very similar fashion. There is a receptor for vitamin D in the cell. The vitamin D goes through the membrane very easily because it's a steroid hormone. It binds to its protein and then goes into the nucleus of the cell where it actually changes the behavior of these cells. Now, we used to study vitamin D many, many years ago, and we found out that it was involved with bone metabolism, with calcium. And this is where you typically hear about vitamin D with calcium and phosphate. But what we're finding out is that there are receptors for vitamin D all over the body, not just involved with bone metabolism. It's also involved in the immune system. There are receptors for vitamin D on immune cells. And so what we started to see is uh, we started to see how vitamin D can be uh, useful in fighting infection. So even before COVID-19 came out, this is back in the late teens, the late 20 teens, okay? So 2016, 17, 18, they've been doing uh, research looking at very large populations over uh, you know hundreds of thousands, uh, tens of thousands of, of patients who have been given vitamin D supplementation in Europe. Now, why in Europe? The reason is, is because vitamin D is a hormone in your body that is made by exposure to ultraviolet radiation from the sun. And so that is obviously gonna be in short supply in the high latitudes of Northern Europe, of Ireland, of, of England, of Germany. And so this is where a lot of research was going into this because this is where we were seeing a lot of deficiency. 
So the bottom line was, is that they did a very, very large analysis of many randomized controlled trials. And what they found was that a modest supplementary dose of vitamin D in patients living in those areas was able to cut down on the acute chest infection rate. There was just a recent public publication in addition to that in Ireland, where obviously they have issues with vitamin D uh, and sunlight exposure that showed that vitamin D supplementation reduced the amount of acute chest infections in their population. So with that being said, now you move to COVID-19, obviously people are gonna be looking at this because we've already had data on this before. And what we started to see coming out, and this referenced exactly what you mentioned, is we started to see that the very groups that were deficient in vitamin D were the ones that were showing up in our hospitals. We were seeing the people with who are older, and as you get older, you can't make as much vitamin D. Uh, we also saw this in people who are dark-skinned. Melanin in the skin actually blocks the beneficial ultraviolet B radiation from the sun, which makes vitamin D. And so you've got to be in the sunlight longer. Uh, we also saw this in people who were obese. Because vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin, it gets stored in the fat, and therefore it's not as bioavailable to the body. And so the very three categories that we saw that we know have vitamin D deficiency were the very ones that were showing up. Again, this is observational data. This is not causative, but it got people very interested in the idea of vitamin D, not only because it's an immunomodulator, but because we know it helps with acute chest infections, and also because we were seeing it in the same three groups. Superhumanize. Thank you so much for sharing this and also putting a focus on the three groups that you see most affected by COVID-19 and explaining why this is so. I have uh, read over the years that actually a large part of the population is vitamin D deficient, uh, obviously in countries such as you mentioned, you know, in the high north. But interestingly enough, also a lot of times in places, let's say like the MENA region, I have friends in the UAE. Uh, where obviously the sun shines all year round, but because of this and because it's so hot, rarely do they venture outside. So they actually also lack um, the, the natural uh, sunlight on their skin in order to produce vitamin D in the bodies. And with regards to the um, getting your nat vitamin D via uh, sunlight or via supplements, what is the difference in this, if there is any? Well, there shouldn't be any theoretical difference, but you're, you're absolutely right about the UAE um, and other countries as well. You know, they've done a study here in the United States that shows that only 7% of our waking hours are spent outdoors. And so you can imagine wherever you are around the world, if you're living in a first world country where a lot of activity occurs in office buildings, you'll know that the ultraviolet B radiation that comes from the sun has to get through the atmosphere. And it's, it's one of the weakest types of ultraviolet radiation and it cannot penetrate glass. So if you're getting a lot of your sun exposure through glass, you're not getting any ultraviolet B radiation. You have to be one-on-one -on -one with the sun. And so the question is, is if you can't get vitamin D production from the sun, which has to be very specific, the sun has to be very high in the sky. In other words, your shadow cannot be longer than you are. And um, you've got to be out there enough to actually get the sun exposure on your skin without anything intervening between it. So the question that you asked is whether or not uh, supplementation is better than, than sunlight. Uh, you know, up until uh, just a, a week or so ago, I would say that there really isn't no, a difference. 
Here's an interesting study, though. This just came out recently, and they looked at people living in the high latitudes where there wasn't enough sunlight during the year to get enough vitamin D deficiency. And yet, and yet, even despite that, they found that people with COVID-19 living in those latitudes who were exposed to the sun still had a lower mortality rate than those that were uh, that were uh, getting enough vitamin D. And so their conclusion was, is that there is some benefit to being in the sunlight that is not completely explained by vitamin D. And, and one of their theories was, was that ultraviolet A, which actually does a lot of the damage like skin cancer and wrinkling of the skin and has no problem penetrating glass whatsoever, may actually sterilize the, uh, the floating particles of, of the, uh, the virus, maybe reducing the viral load and therefore improving the, uh, the mortality. So, um, you know, I, at first I was very sure about the answer to give you, um, but based on these, these new research and data, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. This is fascinating. Uh, you know, I mean, if we if we lived in a more natural state, uh, we probably could avert many of the illnesses and problems that befall us on a mass scale. Uh, sunlight being the best disinfectant, so to speak. That's exactly um, for, right. For someone like myself, I'm extremely fair skinned, so the high sun that you just described is just not optimal. And uh, so I rely on what I like to call optimal nutrition, which um, for me is also supplementing with high quality supplements. I think it's really important you just mentioned the uh, glass. Most of us sit in some time of glass cubicle all day long, whether it's our car, commuting or sitting at home or in the offices now that offices are slowly also reopening with social distances. But yeah, most of us do not spend enough time outside. So when we look at vitamin D supplementation, not all vitamin Ds are equal. If we specifically look at taking it as a preventative uh, for uh, viral infections like COVID-19, which type of vitamin D should we ideally take and how much of it? Very good question. So the first thing that you'll notice when you go to the, uh, the store to buy the vitamin D is they'll have D2 and D3. And these have to do with where they are coming from. There's the ergocalciferol. The ergo is referring to plants and uh, that'll be the D2. And then there's the co-calciferol, that's the co meaning from cholesterol because the body actually makes vitamin D from cholesterol. And of course, there's no cholesterol in plants. And so uh, if you wanna know where it's coming from, if you want a vegan-based vitamin D, you're gonna be getting the ergocalciferol vitamin D2. If you want the, uh, if you're not, you know, if you want it from the animal base, it's gonna be co-calciferol, so like eggs, for instance. I don't think it really makes that much of a difference in terms of that. What, what we want to do is look at, and there's actually a calculator that you can get online where you can plug in your age, how much time you spend and, and comorbidities, and it'll actually calculate for you how much vitamin D you, you want, you, sh you should get. In terms of that site, I, I've got a, uh, you've probably just type in, it's bl I'm blanking out at this point, but if you just type in vitamin D calculator, it's actually set up by a physician who um, does believe that uh, vitamin D supplementation in COVID-19 would be beneficial. The point is, is that if you're able to get vitamin D levels checked, that would be the optimal thing to do. And, and before I go on there, just be aware that there are two different scales that labs use. The, the one I will be referring to is the nanograms per milliliter. 
And uh, generally speaking, if you go to the lab and get your vitamin D levels checked, they will say that the optimal level is to be above 30. If you look at some of the retrospective observational data here in the United States, there was a study that was done looking at 190,000 people. And what they found was that as levels dropped below 50 on the, on the graph, that's when we started to see an increase in not only COVID-19 admission to the hospital, but COVID-19 positivity rates. And so why, why would we say, where do we get this 30 from? Where did the 30 come from? The 30 came from years and years and years of looking at how much vitamin D was required for good bone health. Mm. Um, we don't know how much vitamin D is needed for immune health. Maybe you need more. It's kind of like saying, okay, here is the recipe for how much flour you need to make a loaf of bread. And therefore, that's how much flour you're going to need to make anything else for the rest of you know your, your baking career, whether it's bagels or cakes or whatever. And clearly, that's not the case, right? Sometimes you need more vitamin D in one case than you do in another case. I will say this, in terms of how much vitamin D the maximum limit should be, the Endocrinological Society recommends no more than 4,000 international units per day without physician supervision. And that's because you, there are theoretically some uh, risks and taking too much vitamin D like hypercalcemia, kidney stones, although it's, it seems to be very, very rare in the literature. The one medical condition that I would be very careful about in terms of supplementing for, with vitamin D would be sarcoid. And if you, you don't know what that is, then don't worry about it. But patients with sarcoid know who they are. And uh, in sarcoid, they tend to make too much vitamin D uh, and that can cause hypercalcemia. So that would be the one medical condition where I would be careful. Superhumanize. I also think it's super important to actually look at where the uh, standard accepted uh, dosage uh, comes from what you just mentioned, uh, that it was based on bone density and bone health. And I find it particularly interesting if you look towards regions like the EU, the EU countries and the EU regulations for vitamins and dosages are much, much lower compared to what we're used to here in the US. So our audience in uh, the EU may want to have a look at that as well. Let's talk megadosing vitamin D. Um, if you're very, very deficient and you need to quickly build up your vitamin D reservoir, what are the benefits of megadosing and how can you do so safely? That's a very good question. And it's, it's one that I'm a little bit um, hesitant. Well, not hesitant, but I, I don't know what the good answer is because, and, and I'll tell you why. In the mega analysis and when I say mega analysis, this was uh, 25 different randomized controlled trials. What they found was that those patients, those subjects in the trial, and this was published by Dr. Martineau in the British Medical Journal, I think back in 2017, if those who want to look it up, what they found was that the best way to take vitamin D and, and the way to take vitamin D that was most likely to reduce acute chest infections was not the, the mega doses when you got sick. It was actually the, it's, it's not the hair, it was the turtle. <laughs> it was taking the small amount on a regular basis, either daily or weekly, seemed to be the best at reducing acute chest infections. Now, that being said, 
if somebody is, is deficient, um, it takes a while to get up to a, a regular level. And there has been some studies in COVID-19. There was something called a SHADE trial. This was in, in India, where they gave 60,000 international units, 60,000 60, international units daily for seven days. Um, and so you can imagine that, just do the numbers there. That's a lot in one week. And what they found in that study was they found that there was a, an accelerated time to the patient testing negative for SARS-CoV-2 after they tested positive. And they also found that the inflammatory markers in those patients, these inflammatory markers are a sign of, of, of too high of an immune response of, of morbidity in some cases, mortality in some cases. They found that those levels were lower in those patients who had been given these mega doses versus nothing at all in the first seven days. So there, there is, if we were to give mega doses, I would say since we have a trial that's looked at those uh, patients in India called the SHADE trial, I would go with the 60,000 uh, once daily for seven days and then back off to a, a more uh, reasonable dose. Right. And obviously, preferably, you want to do all of this under medical supervision. So talking about some other uh, supplements that um, are crucial for our health, uh, even in a normal situation, but a specific with regards to COVID-19, I'd like to hear you take on zinc and quercetin. I can tell you very early on in the pandemic, when I was looking for solutions for patients because we had nothing, one of the emerging stories that was coming out was, uh, was quercetin. And uh, we'll talk about zinc as well, but, but they sort of go hand in hand, and that's why you've brought them up together. There was a, a scientist um, in, in Canada and also another scientist in China that had, was going to come together and, and, uh, and do a trial on quercetin. Why quercetin? Quercetin seemed to have some promise in Ebola. It had been used previously. Um, they, had, they had seen some, in, uh, some remarkable antiviral properties in it. But I haven't seen any uh, of those studies come to maturity, and I haven't seen the results of those. Um, so where do we see, what, why would quercetin be a potential possibility? Well, we do know that high intracellular zinc levels inhibits the virus's ability to replicate itself inside of cells. And of course, if you can inhibit the replication of viruses inside of cells, you've, you've solved half the problem right there. Um, the thing that was unclear about those studies was uh, there were in vitro studies, and we didn't know whether or not we could get those zinc levels up high enough in the actual human body, because there's a lot of different players that are involved. And one of the things that you may recall from uh, chemistry is that zinc is a charged uh, element, is a charged ion. And as such, it has a very hard time getting into cells unless it's allowed into cells. What they believe quercetin does is it allows those, the, those zinc ions to go inside the cells. In other words, it acts as a zinc ionophore, and that allows the, um, the ions to be eaten by the cells, if you will. So in other words, uh, quercetin may be a way of getting zinc inside the cell, which may be a way of preventing viral replication. And so early on, when we had really no data on this, we thought this, hey, what's the risks, right? So quercetin is a great supplement. It's found in capers. It's found in onions. It's found in a whole host of, of nice vegetables, which have uh, uh, nutritional properties. 
So quercetin um, and zinc added together may be beneficial in reducing the, uh, the spread of, of coronavirus. Have not seen any randomized controlled trials yet on that, and I understand that they were working on it, but I'd like to see what the data shows. Excellent, yes. And uh, quercetin is uh, one compound. Um, there are other interesting compounds as well, such as allicin, which is contained in garlic. I've also been keeping an eye on herbal extracts, such as... Uh, rosemary, wild oregano, or licorice root extract. This is actually something they use in traditional Chinese medicine, also to inhibit viral infections of the lung. And they all appear to be helpful in inhibiting viral reproduction, what you also uh, just mentioned. Now, of course, if we go to uh, another phase of the disease, are there any cytokine storm inhibitors uh, that are known that have been studied that you uh, find of value to share with our audience? You know, the biggest one is vitamin D. So it's yeah. an immunomodulator. There is, there's some evidence that vitamin D, when used in ARDS, that is adult respiratory distress syndrome or acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is the general term that we use for patients who end up in the hospital with COVID-19 is ARDS or COVID-19, that vitamin D, uh, as we mentioned, goes into the nucleus of the cells and it changes the behavior of those cells in a, in a more modulatory way. Um, so vitamin D can certainly be one of those things. You know, while I don't have a lot of um, data on the modulation of the cytokine storm other than vitamin D, there is a number of information that I have on the innate immune system, uh, phase one uh, with uh, supplements and, um, and oils and things of that nature, which we can talk about. Yes, please. I'd love for you to go into more detail. And just from uh, my side, based on the discussions I've had uh, with friends who are actually, uh, one of them is a uh, traditional Chinese medical doctor in the 37th generation. Uh, there are interesting compounds as well in that come from Ayurveda, such as curcumin, um, or also if you look at, you, we just talked about zinc, and then of course, uh, selenium. But I would love for you to go into more detail uh, for other um, herbs or compounds that would be helpful for the phase one, and also maybe talk about some modalities such as contrast therapy. Yes, thank you. That's exactly what I was where I was headed. So let's first of all let's talk about um, let, let's talk first about Japanese hanoki. So there was a study that was done in Tokyo where uh, they looked at something called Japanese hanoki oil. This is a, a hanoki cypress tree. And they took these executives in Tokyo up into the, for, up into the forest in Japan and they had them exposed for two to three days where they used to basically walk through the forest. And one of the species of plants there was this Japanese hanoki. And, and this is known as forest bathing. You've probably heard of this. Yeah. And what, yeah, what they measured was they measured the cells of the innate immune system. So they measured um, uh, the, uh, the, the cells, they measured the enzymes in the cells. And as they, and they took baseline blood samples and they measured it every day. And by the time they were done the three days, the amount of enzymes, the amount of cells in the innate immune system had all dramatically improved, dramatically increased. And so again, this is the very critical innate immune system that we're talking about with COVID-19. And then they did another study where they, 
they took the oils of the Hanoki cypress tree and they took these uh, executives and they put them into a, a hotel in Tokyo and they diffused these, this Hanoki oil in the hotel room for about the same sort of situation, same sort of time. And they noticed a very similar pattern in terms of those uh, surrogate markers of the innate immune system. So the granules went up, the number of cells went up. And th there was one thing, however, that did not match what their experience was in the forest. The other thing that they measured was the amount of cortisol in the urine. Now, cortisol is a stress hormone. And when they were in the forest, getting the Hanoki oil naturally in the forest, doing the forest bathing, their urinary cortisol levels were very low which shows that they that their stress levels were very low. We know from years and years of research that stress on the immune system has a very deleterious, very bad effect. When they were down in the hotel in Tokyo, yes, they had these increased uh, um, amounts of cells and, and, and granules and things of that nature, but their urine cortisol levels were higher. They were more at, at a baseline of stress showing that they were, they, we were able to reproduce some of the effects of forest bathing, but not all of the effects of forest bathing. And so we didn't actually test them in terms of their ability to fight off infections, but based on the surrogate markers, a lot of these trees and a lot of these uh, pine trees, fir trees, they have something called aromatic compounds that are released into the air that people can breathe in when they go to the forest. And we noticed that they last for about seven days. Uh, in other words, if you were to come back seven days later, the, um, the effect of these cells would start to come down. And so one of the things that I've recommended is taking a nice walk outside in an area that's, that's fairly populated with trees. You don't have to go to the mountaintops of Japan and get the Hanoki oil. There are trees probably close to where you live that have very similar effects. And if you do that once a week, um, you can you can raise your um, uh, immune system up and also have the benefit of having the low cortisol levels. Superhumanize. I have been inviting my friends and everybody who chooses to listen to me to please, please, please get back into nature, get in touch with nature, hug a tree. You know, I, this is something most of us, unfortunately, due to our urban and fast-paced lives, we really lose connection with. So listen to Dr. Schwelt. The man knows what he's talking about. It's science. This is not just a California tree hugger, uh, such no. as me talking to you. Uh, this is a man who knows what he's talking about. And do you think this is really interesting, the difference in the cortisol levels, Um from the real forest bathing, whether breathing the uh, Hinoki uh, cypress tree oil infused air in a hotel, do you think it may also be related to the people exposed to it just being also living their normal routine lives in a stressful urban environment? And maybe if we added, nothing is better than nature, of course, but if we cannot do this, maybe a combination of breathing this oil uh, and meditation or something else that would lower stress would be of benefit? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. We know that stress uh, has a very bad effect on our health. Um, and, and 
we, if we've been, you know, if we've been uh, subjected to stress in the last year, uh, then we've, we've, you know, this is, this is the, we've seen this over and over again. We've seen that the stress from the coronavirus, from the pandemic, from the election, from the uh, finance situation, from all of these things have, have raised a tremendous amount of stress. And the way to combat that, to prevent that from hitting the uh, immune system is, uh, is uh, we can talk about that too, is, is exercise. There's been some very good research there that, that three times a week, mod- just moderate, not even stre- strenuous, but moderate exercise has a tremendous effect uh, on this. Boy, there's so many things to talk about. <laughs> I'm going to talk yeah. about eucalyptus and the contrast like you talked about. Yes, please. I want to get into contrast um, therapy as well, but exercise is so vastly important. It's really something uh, that uh, I find so crucial to keep your physical and also your mental health going. And we have so many things at our disposal. If we can just motivate ourselves to do them, you know, it doesn't cost a lot of money to just get your body moving or to meditate or to breathe. And it also helps uh, uh, us change our state of mind, just getting your body moving. Even if you don't feel like it, once you start moving within minutes, your entire state will change. Your outlook on life will change. Your productivity will change. Your immune system will get boosted. And there's other um, means too. I mean, I personally, I'm unfortunate. I have an infrared sauna at home and I do, (laughs) when I get myself to do it, I do take short ice baths, um, but you don't need that. You can also just alternate the temperature in your shower. That will work too. Uh, So Dr. Schwelt, can you tell us how uh, contrast works on the body and specifically with regards to COVID-19. Yeah, so this is really the, uh, the, the, the coup de grace or the piece de la resistance. I think it's really the cornerstone of, of what I do for patients and what I've done myself in terms of, of uh, COVID-19. So the thing that you've got to understand very, very upfront is that the innate immune system is the part of the immune system that is crippled. It cannot give an interferon response and it's interferon, which is very aptly named. It is interferon that interferes with the virus's ability to infect your cells. So there, if there's one thing that will stimulate the, inter, the interferon response and the innate immune system, it is heat. Heat that is uh, applied externally, but also heat that is comes from a fever. So this is one of the major reasons why, if we look, that we have a fever. You know, they did an experiment where they took monocytes. Monocytes are part of your white blood cells, and they are the cells that are primarily responsible for secreting interferon. And what they did was they did a study that was published. Oh, this was published back a number of years ago. Um, this was by uh, Dr. Downing. And uh, the, the paper, if, if someone wants to look this up, the title is Hyperthermia in Human in humans enhances interferon gamma synthesis and alters the peripheral lymphocyte population. So let me, let me tell you what they did. They took these monocytes out of the body and they exposed them to what they call a mitogen, which stimulates the monocytes to produce this interferon, which is very, very important. So at 37 degrees, they started at 37 degrees centigrade, which is about a little bit cooler than, well, it's about the same as your body temperature. And it was a a minimal response. At 37.5, it was a minimal response. At 38, at 38.5, a minimal response. But when they hit 39 degrees 
Celsius, which is a, a good fever. It's probably about a temperature of 101, 102. There was a tenfold, not a 10%, but a tenfold increase in interferon from those monocytes at that temperature. Wow. So think about what that would do to a circulating virus that wants to get into your cells and think about what that would do to the innate immune system. Before we go on though, I want, I want you to be aware of this, is that in symptomatic patients with COVID-19, 80% of those patients will recover and will not need to go to the hospital. It's the 20% that the virus gets the better of and that gets them into the hospital and the cytokine storm. So even if this, even if heating up the body, heating up the core body temperature to improve interferon response was only maybe 50% beneficial, that could have a dramatic effect at how many people would need to go to the hospital. So, so heating up the patient for about 20 minutes um, so whether it's in a sauna, whether it's in a spa that you have heated up essentially enough, or whether you do something that we call uh, in the old days, hydrotherapy. Um, this is a very, very important thing I believe to do. It's the reason why when I was working in the intensive care unit treating COVID-19 patients, if they had a fever, I told the nurse, do not treat the fever unless it goes over 102, 103. And it was because the fever was showing me that the body was trying to take care of this virus. And we didn't want to cripple it by giving Tylenol or, or uh, these other medications that could uh, suppress it. So at and the end of the 20 minutes, the, what we then do is a cold exposure. And we call this a cold mitten friction rub, where basically you, you take mittens and you kind of, uh, or, or gloves, something that causes irritation to the skin and the cold. And, and the purpose of that is to cause vasoconstriction peripherally to lock in that heat. Because if you, if you stop giving heat to somebody, they're already vasodilated. They're going to emit that heat and they're going to lose that core heat very quickly. And what you want to do is keep that heat in for as long as you can to increase that core body temperature and to increase that interferon response. Superhumanize. Is there anything that somebody who is either themselves or a loved one has been diagnosed uh, with COVID, but they're in this phase where they're sitting at home, is there anything you'd recommend um, particularly to heat up the body? If somebody does not have access to a spa or something similar, could a uh, heating pad come in or what's best to do? Is it enough to shower really hot? So I would use showering and cold showering as a good tonic to try to prevent this, to make sure that your body is up. But if you actually are coming down with fever, if you're coming down with symptoms, the, 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 the methods that I have, I've learned from those that have done this for, for literally over probably a hundred years, mm -hmm. this has been going around. And so I, I go back and I'd love to tell you some of the stories about what I found in the research, looking back at the last pandemic. So, and, and I'll tell you, and I'll give you some resources. So let's go back to the early 1900s, the flu epidemic, which occurred in 1918, 1919 was uh, world renowned and well-known. These were, these were soldiers that were coming back to the United States from areas around the world and were bringing with them the, the Spanish flu, as it was called at the time. And so in the army camps, there was a high population of people that were coming down with this very deadly uh, flu virus. It killed a lot of young people. About 20% of the people in these army camps were coming down with the flu. And about 16% were coming down with pneumonia. And 50% of those were dying. Mm. 
So at this time, there were no antibiotics. Penicillin was discovered in 1928. And um, at this time, there were a number of sanitariums in the Northeast of the United States that were run by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And one of their luminaries, uh, a, a gentleman by the name of John Harvey Kellogg, by the way, the, from the same family that gave you breakfast cereals and all of these health foods in the morning, he was the medical director of the Battle Creek Sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan. At the time, it was the largest hospital in the world. And it treated the likes of presidents, Amelia Earhart, uh, Ford, uh, the people who wanted to, to get the same kind of mindset that you and I have uh, in terms of not just treating with drugs, but to get healthy. And, and a sanitarium, the purpose of a sanitarium was to exercise. It was to, is to regenerate. It was to... And so what were, the, what were the things that they were doing in these sanitariums? It's very interesting what they were doing. Number one, their patients were exposed to sunlight. Number two, a very core part of what they were doing was fresh air. If you'll notice, most of the sanitariums at this time were not located in the cities. They were located in the country, and there had to be a lot of trees. This was specifically proscribed in where these sanitariums were placed, is they had to be in the country with a lot of trees around them. The other thing that they did was as soon as patients came down with symptoms of viral infection, they immediately took them, they isolated them in their room, and the nurses came around and gave them what I'm about to describe to you, which is these hydrotherapy treatments. So the hydrotherapy was basically this. They would heat up a, a large container full of water to almost a boil, and they would dip um, these, these towels, for lack of a better term, in this. They would wring them out with gloves on to make sure that they didn't burn themselves, because burning was one of the major complications of doing this type of procedure they would uh, put a protective layer of towel on the patient and they would put these hot towels, very, very hot towels on these patients. And uh, essentially for about 20 minutes, they would switch these towels out so they would bring the patient to a sweat so that their core body temperature was elevated. And then they would do this ice cold, cold mitten friction to vasoconstrict and to elevate and to, to cause the cells to move. You know, when you're, when you're, uh, blood vessels constrict, they do something called demargination. This is where white blood cells, which are normally attached to the cell, to the surface of the blood vessels now become dislodged and they now start to circulate throughout the body, helping in terms of this. And so what happened was, is the rates of death in the influenza epidemic in 1918 to 1919 were much lower, they found, in these sanitariums. How did they know that? There's, a, there's an article that you can find to this day. It's, it's, in a, it's in a journal called Life and Health. It was dated May 1st, 1919. And one of the medical directors of the Boston Sanitarium in Boston, Massachusetts, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Wells Rubel, said, let's go ahead and compare what we're doing here in the sanitariums with rest, with sunlight, with fresh air, with hydrotherapy, uh, and compare that to what's going on in the, in the uh, army hospitals where they felt at the time that a lot of the deaths from the virus were due to the symptoms of the virus. So they saw fever as a problem, not yeah. as part of the solution. And so because aspirin had just been discovered in 1899, high doses of aspirin were being used to kill the fever in these army hospitals. And, and what they found was this. They found that Whereas a patient in the army hospital had about a 16% risk of coming down with pneumonia in the sanitariums, it was about 8%. Hmm. 
uh, when they got down or, or even lower than that. And when they got pneumonia, when they got pneumonia in either place, this is before penicillin, this is before antibiotics, there was about a 50% chance of them dying in either place. So the moral of the story was, is that you had to intervene early before the pneumonia kicked in. And the way to do that was by enhancing the body's immune system response instead of inhibiting it with the aspirin. A great glimpse into history and another great insight intervening early. And speaking about that, uh, there's another way to intervene early to be preventative, and that is nutrition. Um, in your opinion, what foods should we eat to strengthen our immune system? What would you recommend as prevention? Well, and that was the other aspect that I failed to mention in what was going on in the sanitariums is that um, John Harvey Kellogg and uh, a number of these luminaries who were looking at this were starting to see what they felt were the evils of eating flesh, of eating meat. And so they moved away from that and they, they were very, uh, they, they were, they looked very long and hard at looking at plant-based diets. Now, this is where they have come from, but the question is, is what's the science behind that? Uh, if you looked over the last 20, 30 years, what you will see is that it's very, very difficult to do randomized controlled trials on food. And that's because people have all sorts of, of habits and it's very difficult for them to change. So what a lot of the studies have done in the last 20, 30 years, in even longer, is they've done prospective observational studies where they will say, okay, let's have you sit down, let's write down everything that you eat, let's check in with you every year or so, see if things are changing, and then let's follow up with these patients seven or eight years down the road. And so it's, sometimes it's hard to tease out whether or not the diet is causing the problem or whether the problem is associated with the diet in some other way. But they have ways of controlling for that. But if you look at some of the data that's come out, you will see quite often, and this is the thought for, for, for many years, was that processed meats were associated with higher risks of cancer and cardiovascular disease. Just last month, however, there was a paper that was published based on seven or eight years and half a million patients, I believe it was, in a UK study that looked at, again, a prospective observational study. And what they found there was that uh, they once again shown once again that a, a nutritional diet did increase that was that was high in processed meats increased the risk of cancer and cardiovascular disease. But they've also now found that even non-processed meats can be increased can increase the risk of these of these cancers and cardiovascular disease. And even more importantly, what I found in this study that was that I'd never seen before was that the increased risk of eating meats can increase the risk of pneumonia. That was published in this, in this prospective uh, observational study out of the UK. Ah, uh, really fascinating insight here. I personally have chosen to eat plant-based many years ago. I switched to a, from a, I used to be a huge meat eater. I switched to a vegetarian diet in uh, about uh, 13 years ago, and I switched to a vegan diet about six years ago, or what I call AVAP, as vegan as possible. I make exceptions once in a while, maybe every uh, year, a couple of years, I eat a little bit of honey here and there. Um, what is your personal nutrition? Is it very plant-focused or plant-based? 
Yes, I too um, used to eat. Uh, I used to get the the Carl's Jr. Uh, <laughs> hamburger uh, when I was in, in college. And you know, when we're in college, we're indestructible, and you know, uh, it's convenience, right? You've got to study, you got to pass your tests. Um, that changed after I went to medical school and I had a better education about what's going on, what's uh, what's what they put in food. And I also am too a vegetarian at this point, and try to try to be. Uh, somewhere between vegetarian and vegan as, as, as best as I can. I'll occasionally have an egg and, uh, you know, if, if there's some cheese, uh, it, it might pass my lips. But um, I've also made this a, a similar decision. Superhumanize. Speaking about a lifestyle, about supplements, about nutrition, um, why do governments not put a higher emphasis on this and all the other methods that could naturally strengthen the population's response to severe illness such as COVID-19. I mean, from my own perception, it's not only immoral not to do so, it's not only immoral uh, not to do so uh, from a pure pragmatic perspective, you know, what illnesses uh, cost us as societies, what it does to our economics is just insane. So why don't governments put a higher emphasis on this? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's clearly if you look at the data that there's no question that we could cut down uh, government expenditure, we could uh, dramatically reduce hospitalizations, cardiovascular death, if we were to follow uh, these recommendations. You know, they put them in the recommendations. They say the first thing that you do when you treat hypertension is lifestyle. That's what they say. The problem is, is that there are uh, so many conflicts of interest. I mean, we we have a society that has been brought up uh, on meat. And I mean, look at Thanksgiving, right? What's on the center of the table? It's it's a turkey. And, um, and this is traditional. And this is what we do. And there's many, many, there's a lot of people that are involved in those industries. And so what we need to do is, if we wanted to, as a society, say that this is something that we need to move away from, then we need to be, we need to transition. And um, there's a lot of, of interests involved with that. And that, and I mean, just look at, I'm reminded when I was something that was, that really indelled on me when I was a teenager um, back when I remember when Oprah Winfrey took on the meat industry and uh, she was sued for what she had said about the, the meat industry. So there's a very powerful lobbies, people that are very interested in, uh, in their things. And so just like anything else there, it, it's a battle. Right. Yes. And I think it's really critical to uh, make everybody who's not already invested into looking behind the curtain of why the world is run the way it is. It's really critical to make people aware of these connections and that our best interest is not always the interest of uh, big corporations and even governments. You know, with this COVID-19 situation, a lot of people are afraid it's never going to go away. And you just spoke about the so-called Spanish flu pandemic. Uh, humanity has gone through other pandemics in the past, some that were much, much worse. What is your perspective? Will COVID-19 be eliminated or will it become endemic? Uh, how is the future going to look? I hope that it is going to go away. And I look for data that might support that. And the data that I find that might support that is if you look at the current variants, the current variants, well, first of all, there are variants that are being made all the time 
from the virus. Whenever a virus is replicating in a human being, because the viral replication process is so inaccurate, it's going to make a lot of mistakes. Now, those mistakes that are deleterious or detrimental to the virus never make it out. You never see those variants. It's only the variants that give it a special way of, of surviving or strength that you're going to see. Now, if we saw the variants that were coming out, for instance, in the UK and in South Africa and in Brazil, if they all had different ways of getting stronger, I would be very concerned because it would look to me as though there's a lot of holes in our body's way of taking care of this. And most of these mutations are occurring in something called the spike protein, which allows the virus to, to dock to our ACE2 receptor on our cells. The fact of the matter is that um, indeed, these mutations are all very similar in what they've done in that they've taken care of one particular hole in our body's way of taking care of this. The way I like to try to describe it is imagine a freeway with multiple lanes and there's debris on the freeway. What's happening is, is that as the cars are going past the debris, it's moving the stuff out of the way in the middle of the lane and pushing the debris to the edge of the lanes. And so we can see after multiple rounds of the virus, multiple uh, replications of the virus, we're starting to see an emerging picture where the virus is mutating in multiple places around the world in a similar way to take care of a way of, of getting a hold of our immune system. So if we're able to, uh, through, through science and technology, come up with a way of eliminating that hole then I believe eventually this virus is going to die out because it seems to me based on that, it's not like it's going to be a mini series. It seems like this is a final encore. Uh, it's pulling, it's playing its last card. And so in my estimation, my hope is, is that once this is dealt with, then uh, there's no other um, weird mutations or variants. But I would say that if we want to reduce the chance of a variant coming out and, and, and getting the best of us, the best way to do that is to prevent infections in human beings. Right, so we need to work on our resistance, our resilience. And of course, there's also other ways. Uh, I would like in a minute or two also to talk about um, vaccinations and your personal experience with them. But first I'd like to go into um, a long haul COVID-19 patients. Uh, currently researchers estimate about, I think it's about 10% of COVID-19 patients become so-called long haulers. Uh, what can be done at present that you're aware of against these lingering symptoms many of these individuals are dealing with uh, from brain fog, depression, anxiety, uh, chest pains, potential higher risk for stroke and, and such? So we are right now with long haulers where we were a year ago with the virus. We are you know, grappling with data. We are groping in the dark, trying to find our way to the door. And that's where we are now because we're seeing so many of these long haulers and we haven't had the data to really sort through it. I would say this, the, there seems to be some data that ironically, vaccination may actually help. And the theory is, and this is based on just empiric data where they've asked people, and it's not overwhelming in any way, but it seems as though there's slightly more people, if you were to ask them, 
long haulers who got the vaccine, either the, the Moderna or the, uh, the, the Pfizer vaccine, there seems to be slightly more people who feel that their symptoms got better after the vaccine than before. Now, why would that be? That's, it's potentially possible they believe that there is a reservoir or somewhere where there is a storage in the body of the virus that's not detectable. And so they're testing negative, but it may be hanging out somewhere and causing the, the uh, ongoing inflammation. And so the vaccine may stimulate the immune system to the point where it's able to take care of it. Now, that kind of goes against what we were thinking early on, which is that it's the immune system's response against the virus, which is causing the long hauler syndrome. And therefore, you wouldn't want to do the vaccine. Well, again, the data is out on that. We just don't know. Um, probably one of the most feared uh, long haul symptoms is the loss of taste and smell. I mean, I know people that would not have gotten the vaccine except for the fact that they didn't want to have the chance of potentially living for the rest of their life without being able to smell and taste. And that's why they got the vaccine. So what can we do for that? I have heard from, uh, from colleagues, some anecdotal evidence that believe it or not, um, essential oils, uh, training your olfaction with essential oils may bring back olfaction um, it, it, at a faster pace. I have anecdotal stories. It wasn't a randomized controlled trial, but uh, at least three stories now from a, a dentist friend of mine who uh, does has some knowledge about uh, essential oils where they were recommended to patients taking eucalyptus, for instance, and, and smelling it. And, um, and after a while, their smell was able to come back after a week or so. So um, in terms of further data, I, we don't have much other than that. Uh, we do see that there is a, certainly an increased risk of blood clots. Recently, a paper just came out showing that there was no benefit from giving prophylactic blood thinners in patients who did not need to be hospitalized with COVID-19. There's been some data that's come out before that giving patients that were admitted to a regular floor in the hospital, that means not an intensive care unit, but a regular floor, did benefit from getting prophylactic anticoagulation. And also there's data that shows that people that are so sick that they have to be admitted to the intensive care unit did not benefit from prophylactic um, anticoagulation. But in terms of long hauler syndrome, I can tell you, I actually know people personally, knew them that died shortly after getting COVID and they were in the recovery phase. But then one day, uh, this woman that I know, she basically got up from her bed and collapsed on the way to the bathroom. And, and the diagnosis presumptively was a, a blood clot. Oh, that's so sad and so yeah. tragic. And for listeners who are worried about that and fall into the category of COVID-19 long haulers, are there specific supplements you could do to, uh, you know, that could reduce the risk of clots, maybe something such as turmeric or ginger? Are there others that may be good to just include in your regular diet? Yeah, so I've heard that, uh, and I've read, and there's some studies that garlic is actually a good anticoagulant. Um, uh, it's also, uh, it also aids in, in social distancing as well. <laughs> um, but here's, here's actually the simplest thing that can tremendously improve your ability to not clot unnecessarily. And that is adequate internal amounts of water. Drinking enough water on a daily basis 
can do a tremendous amount at preventing unnecessary blood clots. Superhumanize. Something I'd, um, I'd like to uh, go back to, you mentioned that vaccines, that they're, that they're, uh, that they're thoughts that um, COVID long haulers getting vaccinated, that that actually may help them. You spoke about the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine specifically. How about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? Yeah, so that one also as well, although when I was listening to the conversations and reading about the conversations about this, the Johnson & Johnson had not yet come out. So the, the articles were referencing Moderna and the, uh, and the Pfizer uh, vaccine, but I don't see why the Johnson & Johnson would be any different. Great. And with regards to how the uh, different COVID-19 vaccines work, uh, what is your personal experience with them? Okay, so uh, most of last year, unfortunately, I was uh, involved in a lot of, of death, a lot of dying. I mean, I, I could tell you stories one after the other that would just make your hair curl. I mean, there was patients sometimes where people were coming into the hospital so quickly and we were trying to get a hold of their family and their family members were down in the emergency room as patients themselves. So whole mm -hmm. families were just being wiped out. Um, and so it's against that backdrop where I've just seen so much tragedy happening at so quick a level that for me, um, the risks were high of me contracting the disease. Uh, I never, I can tell you that I never tested positive. Um, I never had symptoms that I knew of. However, um, when the vaccine, in this case, it was the Pfizer vaccine, when it first came out in December of 2020, I, I was... I did not know prior to that whether or not I was going to get the vaccine. It wasn't like the whole summer I was just waiting for the vaccine. Um, people would ask me, do you want to get the vaccine? And I would say, I don't know. I haven't seen the data yet. I haven't seen the side effects. I'll make a decision when the data comes out. Uh, I was very surprised to see that there was a 90% plus efficacy in terms of preventing disease in the recipient. As you may know, those phase three trials were not designed to test to see whether or not there was a reduction in infections or a reduction in transmission to other people. Um, but there was good efficacy in terms of preventing disease. And so because of what I had seen, because of the fact that even though I knew they had no data on transmission, that it was very likely that that was to be positive, I went ahead and took the vaccine. Now, they usually say that the first dose is mild. It's the second dose that's very severe. I noticed that when I got the first dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine in late December or mid-December, that I had um, I had all of the signs. I had this, the fevers, the chills, uh, slightly elevated temperature. But the thing that got me the most on that first shot was I just had tremendous upper back pain. And if I were to look up or look down, it was it was very painful for me to do that. That lasted for about three or four days. And I, and quite frankly, I was a little bit nervous to get the second dose, but actually the second dose was much more mild. And it had later come out that people who may have had the virus and didn't know it uh, may have been having a stronger reaction to the first dose than they were to the second dose. So because of that, I suspect just because of the fact that I was literally in the ICU for five weeks straight taking care of COVID-19 patients, it's very likely that I did contract the virus, but either I had a very mild course of it or, you know, didn't know it. And, uh, but I got the vaccine anyway. So um, that was my personal experience with the vaccine.
Right. And uh, what you just spoke about, I have friends who have had COVID and also did get the vaccine recently. And some of them have been dealing with some really severe side effects, you know, making them curse the vaccine on the one side being happy to have gotten it. But on the other side, they just didn't expect such long lasting and severe side effects. But I guess there's nothing uh, to do but just sit it out. Yeah, they usually last a few days. Um, one of the things that they've recommended is that if you are going to get the vaccine, not to take ibuprofen or NSAIDs prior to getting the vaccination because it, they don't know, but they want to make sure that it doesn't impact the efficacy of the vaccine. However, after you get the vaccine, if you start to have symptoms of muscle aches and things that you could judiciously take ibuprofen after the vaccine. So that's something that might be helpful. Right. And also focus on getting good sleep. I have read that there are studies that correlate uh, good sleep and enhancing the efficacy of a vaccine. That's absolutely true. Yeah. So University of Pittsburgh published a, a study back around 2000, maybe it was 1999, that showed that you could double your antibody response the next day after a vaccine if you just got a seven or eight hours of sleep the night before as opposed to four hours of sleep the night before. So that was uh, certainly, that's just one night. Excellent. And what I love about your particular take, Dr. Schweld, is that you're obviously an advocate for prevention, for a healthy lifestyle, and for taking control of your health, of your immune system, of your response. Uh, you also have a very uh, measured um, uh, opinion uh, with regards to vaccines. I, myself and my circle of friends, I have uh, people who are you know, absolutely pro-vaccines. I have people who are complete anti-vaxxers, have never received a vaccine in their life. I personally am somewhere in the middle. I think certain vaccines are very, very beneficial and certainly looking at what's happening right now, you know, many of all, for many of us, it is just the best choice to get vaccinated. However, there's also um, a lot of research going on into treatments. Um, so not vaccines, but for example, just today I read that Regeneron says their antibody cocktail prevented COVID-19 when they gave it as a simple injection. So not just given as an IV. Uh, of course, there's been other studies and other uh, compounds mentioned, such as ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, uh, plasma treatment. What are your thoughts on the present state of uh, research for treatments on COVID? So the thing about this is, is that we have to, one of the things that I think has to be understood clearly by everybody who wants to follow these kinds of things is that there is a hierarchy of literature. There's a hierarchy of studies and it has to do with bias and it has to do with confounders. What I mean to say that is if you look at studies that are retrospective, um, you're, you're going to see things that might pop up and are good to ask further questions. But the ultimate study that you need to do to say that this works is a randomized placebo-controlled trial that is peer-reviewed and then published. And until you get to that point, you really cannot say that something works. You can say that something is associated with a better outcome. You could say a whole bunch of things, but you can't say that. And so the problem is, is that it takes a lot of time and effort to get to that randomized placebo controlled trial. 
It's the time that you don't have in a pandemic because thousands of people are dying every day. And so, whereas normally in our world of chronic diseases where, you know, we, we have people coming in and people going out and we're randomizing things and we're, that works great to have the FDA set up to say, we will approve something if there's a randomized placebo-controlled trial. We don't have that. We're in a pandemic. And so if something looks good, if something might work, then what we have to do is what we always do in life, and we don't really cognitively, consciously think about it, but we have to weigh the risks and the benefits. And so that's where a lot of these things have come up in the last year, like hydroxychloroquine, like ivermectin. And because what we have are, are, are medicines that have already been developed that have a very well-known safety profile. Obviously nothing is risk-free. And we say, look, here are, here, is some, here are some studies that are not randomized placebo-controlled trials in some cases, at least early on. Uh, they're observational studies. It seems like it might work. There's low risk. What do we got to lose? And so that's where you have doctors in the hospitals or doctors in their clinics that are prescribing medications for patients because they got nothing else. And that's where we're using ivermectin. We did use ivermectin in the hospital. I used hydroxychloroquine in the hospital. Uh, we used a whole bunch of those things. But the, the problem that compounds that now, that was just the theoretical. Now let's get to the practical. As soon as you have a pandemic situation and you have somebody saying that drug A works, now drug A is not going to be available because everybody who has COVID and everyone who is afraid of getting COVID is going to hoard that medication. And so now the people that actually need that medicine won't be able to get it. Uh, it's, a, it's what happened to hydroxychloroquine. You weren't able to get it once uh, it was known that this was something that was being looked at. Um, when uh, Dr. Uh, Corey went to the Senate and testified that he felt that ivermectin was uh, a great medication based on data that he presented, he, he didn't say that we ought to be using it right away. What he said was something actually that was pretty smart. He said, we need to look into this and we need to see whether or not we should do it here. And the reason why he said that, he wanted why the FDA to look at it is because the the only way you'd be able to use ivermectin in this country is if there was enough ivermectin to use. Uh, and so you would have to get cooperation with the companies to upregulate how much ivermectin they were making. Because as soon as you say something works, that's a pill that you can pop as an outpatient and get from a pharmacy, it's going to be out. It's going to be gone. Uh, and so what we've done, what we, where we have a situation today is we've had a, we had a lot of retrospective studies when we're talking about hydroxychloroquine, a lot of retrospective studies, observational studies, some randomized single center controlled trials that seem to show some benefit. But when it was put onto the world stage and we had the UK recovery trial with hydroxychloroquine, there was no benefit in those patients. Now it could be early versus late. Um, when we looked at the ivermectin, uh, we'll talk about ivermectin here. Ivermectin is an anti-parasitic medication, which means it kills parasites. If you look at where ivermectin was trialed early on in the COVID-19 course, it was in countries that had lots of ivermectin. Well, patient, uh, countries have lots of ivermectin if they have a lot of patients with parasitic infections. So you see South America with a lot of ivermectin trials. You see the Middle East with a lot of ivermectin trials. And remember at this time, we were giving steroids to patients. So if you look in the populations of those countries, 
you will see in some studies that 50, even up to 60% of the population in those countries have low-grade subclinical parasitic infections that are just living in the body and you know they're, they're not causing disease and the, and the person is able to live. So now what happens is they get COVID-19 and you put them on a massive immunosuppressant dex, dexamethasone, which is indicated in the second phase of this infection when they get into the hospital. And so now with the immune system gone in these patients, because you're suppressing them with, with dexamethasone, the parasites are now able to replicate, they're able to advance. And so it's not surprising that in people who get ivermectin in those countries that they do better. I, I think they should be getting ivermectin if it's showing improvement. What we need in this country where we don't have a high amount of parasitic infections is a randomized controlled trial in the United States to see whether or not ivermectin works. You know that, that the FDA required Johnson & Johnson to do a randomized controlled trial in the United States on their vaccine. They would not accept international data. So this is not a double standard here. The FDA wants controlled trial data in the United States on things that it wants to approve. So it's if I were to sum up the whole thing about treatments, number one, we need a randomized placebo-controlled trial to say that it works. We don't have the time for that in a pandemic, so we've got to take less data. And when we take less data or not as good data, we always run into the problem of maybe approving something that may not work. And, um, and because of that, because it's easily available, we also have to be able to ramp up the production of those medicines so that they can be available. So there are, there are complications and questions and concerns about those kind of treatments that's not simple on the, on the surface. And unless you understand those issues, it may not be evident. Superhumanize. Are there any interesting studies or trials you're following right now with respect to drug treatments? Um, with respect to drug treatments, um, not so many. I know that they're looking at HIV medications. I know that Regeneron and Eli Lilly are looking at their monoclonal antibodies, as you've just mentioned, and that's very good news. If you could give it as an injection, that will help practically with patients getting it. Um, no, what I actually am interested in um, is a is a uh, prospective trial that's being undertaken right now in the UK, interestingly, by the same scientist that published the vitamin D study, Dr. Martineau, who's looking at something that you'd be very interested in, diet and lifestyle as a prospective indicator for COVID-19 outcomes. And so they're actually gathering data right now as we speak in patients who have had COVID-19 and those who haven't, and they're filling out questionnaires. Um, it's, uh, it's going on right now in the UK. I'll be very interested to see what those outcomes are. Mm, excellent. And something else that I find interesting is uh, there are predictions that we could in the near future have vaccines for cancer and HIV thanks to the COVID-19 vaccines that have been developed using the novel mRNA technology. Uh, scientists are now applying this technology to other difficult to treat diseases and clinical trials are underway. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. So if you, it's, it's really interesting. There's a, a great article on the internet about the history of this mRNA thing and where it all started and Moderna and all of that. I was surprised to learn that the very first time scientists were able to report and publish on taking messenger RNA and putting it into a mammalian cell and having that mammalian cell produce a protein that was published in 1990. That was over 30 years ago. 
And so um, this technology, at least in the lab, has been looked at for decades. And fortunately, it had been because if we weren't in that kind of position, I don't know if we've been able to make that jump to uh, vaccines in humans as quickly as we did. As it stood, Moderna had already been looking at doing this for exactly what you were mentioning, medications, HIV, and, um, and uh, cancers. But when the pandemic hit, they quickly switched their, uh, their interest, obviously, over to making a vaccine for the novel coronavirus. But you're right. I mean, it's, it's basically they're able to come up with the blueprint based on the genetics of what they need and the protein they need to make. And it's, so it's, it can be very quickly scaled to a vaccine that can be uh, tested in animals uh, as it was in COVID-19 and then in humans. Mm, excellent. And I, I think, you know, if we really in each and every one of us personally uh, focus and take the responsibility and also the power back to take care of our health and where we're in a position of looking at our nutrition, looking at our supplements, living in a exercise, living preventatively, and then on top of that, when needed, make use of these scientific technological advancements, we would be in a very good spot, but just not let it get to a place where we are victims of uh, yeah, a rundown immune system that's in our hands um, to make it better, to make it function better. And Dr. Schwell, there's a question I ask every guest on the podcast with regards to the practices uh, they have in their lives that have helped them mentally, spiritually, or physically, do you have anything that you would like to share with the audience? Yes, it's um, it's realizing that you're part of something that's bigger than you. Number one. So uh, the first thing that I would say is is that uh, you know when you have a purpose in life, things happen much more easily. And uh, the purpose that I have is is doing exactly what we're talking about here. Is is I went to medical school to help people and to uh, make people more healthy. And so being a part of something that's bigger than myself, uh, obviously my spirituality informs that. People say, oh, how great, great, you, you are at this and you are at that. And I say, no, no, no. Uh, I'm simply just a, a mirror that's reflecting a, a greater light uh, into yours. And so if I'm able to be a part of that, I'm happy to do that. So that's, that's number one. Um, number two is um, the the things that I've been talking about. So changing, changing the diet, hydrotherapy, these sorts of things, uh, and making sure that uh, I'm living up to the standards that I'm, I'm aware of. And then the last thing that I, I believe has really helped me the most, and in studying the human body and looking at this, is something that we do on a daily basis is we rest uh, for eight hours. But something that um, may not be so obvious is that, especially in our American culture, we have a tendency to work, work, work. And um, as I was getting back to with the Hanoki oil uh, and those Japanese uh, CEOs, a lot of what happens, happens for, uh, for seven days. I've noticed that over and over and over again. You know that when the French Revolution occurred, they tried to change the week to a 10-day week, and it didn't last very long. <laughs> and so what I'm getting to is, is that um, putting aside uh, a 24-hour area of rest and, and uh, relaxation and getting back to 
the things that uh, that in, that uh, strengthen us and enforce us and and uh, inform us, I should say, and uh, and give us rest. I think is is really really important, and that's one of the things that I have done from the very beginning. I made it a point, even though it was very tempting in medical school to study for seven days because it was very competitive. I always made sure that from Friday night to Saturday night, I took that time off and uh, and gave it a rest. And I think my brain's ability to rest made me able to pick up those textbooks on Sunday morning and really get to it. Mm, that is wise advice. And for people who'd like to connect with you or learn more about your mission and work, where can they best do that? Well, um, first of all, I, you just reminded me that I was going to give you some resources about the um, about uh, hydrotherapy. And um, one of the one of the websites that I think is very I'll give you two websites. The first one is hydro, the number four covid.com hydro for covid.com the number four the other website is hydrotherapy at home.com now i'm not involved in those websites but i found them to be very very resourceful uh, of course you can follow us on our youtube channel which is medcram on youtube we're also on twitter and we also have a website called medcram.com where we publish uh, videos for healthcare workers for continuing medical education. Um, I've also been partnering with an organization called AMEN, which is a medical evangelism network that's talking about natural remedies and hydrotherapy and rest and exercise and these sorts of things that we've been talking about uh, today. And that's um, amensda.org. And I, I found that they have some very helpful videos informational and also ones that you can share with other people as well. Fantastic. I'll make sure to put all of that into the show notes. Dr. Schwelp, thank you very much for this really insightful and educational conversation. I'm super grateful for your time and uh, that you are a guest on the show. Thank you. Yes, you can have me back anytime. I would love that. I'll be in touch. I'd love a follow-up. Like you said, so many things to talk about and uh, loved learning from you. And thank you for sharing uh, all the things you've learned and do with our audience. I'm very, very grateful. Thank you so much, Arian. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Evolution. 